Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the significance of observing Transgender Day of Remembrance as violence against LGBTQ plus people continues on several fronts. The role that violent anti-Arab extremists played in Netanyahu's return to power in Israel and what that means for Palestinians and how advisory elections can revitalize the peace movement in the United States. And later on in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, you know, this weekend was pretty busy for me, and I haven't been this active since starting dialysis. I'm feeling pretty good and getting a pretty good uh, uh, handle on managing the treatment schedule where I can get my four treatments in during the week and still have a little bit of flexibility if I want to move a scheduled treatment day so that I can do something fun during the week. It's been daunting and overwhelming, but I'm getting into some kind of groove finally. So this weekend, I finally got a chance to go out and do some fun things and what I what a treat it was. I was able to attend a book discussion for Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing at Howard University with the wonderful Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly, friend of the show. It was a treat to see her in person since I hadn't seen her since two years ago at Momia's birthday rally in Philadelphia. And the talk she gave Friday night was fantastic. And I hope we'll be able to share it with you if the video becomes available. When it does, we'll be sure to drop it on our Facebook page and possibly on Twitter if Twitter still exists, because who knows if Elon Musk has chewed through the power cords, right? It was exciting to be in a room full of young folks at Howard University who were either members of the Claudia Jones School for Political Education or the D.C. Young Communists League or other radical organizations active on campus, which gave me hope that a socialist revolution will be fervently pushed for by the youth who are not afraid of being openly anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, and fully communist. It was exciting to be in that room full of inquisitive, appreciative minds, eagerly soaking up powerful words of wisdom from the good Dr. CBS, who also has a wicked sense of humor, by the way, and is that guerrilla academic that Walter Rodney instructed those in academia to be to prove themselves useful to liberation struggles. Then some pretty interesting things happened that I, I honestly never know how to handle, but I'm very thankful for. One man approached me kind of giggly and asked if I was Jackie Lukeman. I said, well, yes, I am. And he was so excited when he told me that he loves by any means necessary and listens as much as he can. And he also follows me on Black Power Media. I thanked him very much. But I have to admit that I am never sure how to handle people who are nervous when they meet me. I promise y'all there's nothing particularly special about me. Well, except maybe for my love of good pajamas and bad zombie movies, but but I promise you, I really am just Jacqueline, a small lady from a small town in Virginia with a big mouth when it comes to smashing this capitalist system and liberation for the working class and poor. Another dude did the same thing and said he used to listen 
to us on Spotify every day. But since we were booted off all podcast platforms in the Red Scare of 2022, he's had a hard time being able to listen online because of his schedule. He was pretty excited to meet me, too, and I was just as excited to hear him talk about how much he loves the show and the work Sean and I do and how important he thinks our work is to him. I thanked him for his support and told him he can still listen to the shows on SputnikNews.com since the episodes are posted the next day. So you don't have to miss us just because we're not on Spotify or those podcast platforms. You can still get your daily dose of By Any Means Necessary right on the Sputnik News website. I don't know why Dr. CBS shouted me out during her talk, but when she did, the whole room applauded, and now I'm the one sitting there giggling and nervous, and man, I'm really bad at taking compliments. I admit it. I, don't, I, I just don't, I don't know how to do it. But I think the best part for me was after the talk, a young brother came up to me and said he followed my work on Black Power Media, and even before then, on Luke My Nation, and he thanked me for the shows I did about substance abuse disorder and mental health disorders after my abdus died. He said that show was so important for him to hear the compassion and understanding that I had along with the hard, cold science that he never knew, that nobody ever talked about, and the politics behind those issues because of experiences he had in his own family. He thanked me because he said those shows changed the way he saw some of the experience that he went through in his own family, but I'm the one who was grateful for him taking the time to tell me how much show those shows meant to him because, see, Abdus wanted us to reach people with Luke Mon Nation. That's why he started it. He wanted us to make some type of impact on this world. He wanted us to raise people's consciousness, to help people understand issues that they thought were too deep or too complex for them to unpack so that they can feel empowered to change this rotten system. And even Sean, who attended the People's Forum this weekend in New York City, said he met a listener who lives in Switzerland who told him they're a daily listener of the show, that we are a big part of her politicization, and that she only knows about different movement groups because of us. Even though I'm terrible and forget people's names very quickly, I'm so sorry. I'll do better and write people's names down next time. But I truly thank all those folks for coming up to me and confirming for me that Abdus's legacy is indeed alive. And for folks coming up to Sean and letting him know that we here on the show and what we do on By Any Means Necessary, it's absolutely reaching people and making a difference in the world. So for me, as long as I'm alive, Luke Mon Nation forever. And Sean and I will continue to bring you the kind of content that uplifts and connects people's movements all over the world by any means necessary. And you can follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. 
And let's keep the movement moving on, as they say. I am very happy to be joined by Carly Webb, an athlete, activist, journalist, socialist, and contributor to OutSports and host of the Transporter Room, and Rosa Astra, organizer with the Trans March in San Francisco, to talk about the importance of recognizing Transgender Day of Remembrance, particularly on today, uh, the need for a call for working class unity against all bigotry is so important uh, today, Rosa, as unfortunately we are uh, watching the uh, sad outcome of another act of violence against trans people uh, at, against the LGBTQ community that has occurred just over the weekend uh, as we are uh, commemorating Transgender Day of Remember- Remembrance uh, on November 20th. So can you give us some history, some background into the Transgender Day of Remembrance and why it is so important today uh, to commemorate this day and uh to really focus on working class unity against all bigotry, uh, particularly focused against the LGBTQ community today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Transgender Day of Remembrance was first commemorated in 1999, and it is a annual commemoration of all of the people in the trans community who were killed by deadly transphobic, homophobic violence. Uh, over the past year, unfortunately, we know that every year there is a, a long list of names um, that that can be read. And there are also so many other people in the trans community who are not directly killed by transphobic violence uh, in, in, in the sense that they are directly murdered by someone, but trans people face very high rates of homelessness, of discrimination in jobs, of medical neglect, and uh, so many members of our community are, are killed by these. And then, as you mentioned, there was uh, the, the mass shooting just uh, just Saturday night in Colorado Springs, where uh, five people were killed and uh, many others injured in this just blatant act of uh, of really fascist uh, instigated violence against the LGBTQ community. And so Transgender Day of Remembrance is important because it's a day for us to, as a, as a community, commemorate and, and mourn our dead, but also to commit ourselves for fighting to stop this violence, uh, for fighting for our liberation and for fighting for the things that not just trans people, but every working class person needs uh, to have our our basic needs met and to be able to just live and thrive uh, in community and in society. And I should note that uh, Rosa and Carly uh, co-authored an article in Liberation uh, newspaper, the the newspaper of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, uh, entitled On Transgender Day of Remembrance, A Call for Working Class Unity Against All Bigotry. And Carly, you know, what has been the very uh, long but 
even more elevated in the recent years um, march of political action against transgender people that has made this kind of uh, overt physical and deadly violence uh, much more commonplace in American society. Well, Jackie, where can you start? First, first off, in your state legislatures, since March, since Trans Day of Visibility 2020, you've had over 300 separate pieces of legislation that have either been filed, debated, or passed in legislatures across this country, across, over, across 40 states to be exact, in these last two and a half years or so. And that has had a knock-on effect. 19 states have passed differing forms of this legislation. Obviously, we've heard about the Don't Say Gay Law in Florida. You've heard about the actions of the, of the Abbott regime in Texas, and so on and so forth. Now, also add to that, you have a media climate in this country which largely is, is transphobic. Let's just call it what it is. And I'm not just talking about the run-and-gun, clickbait, right-wing media. I'm not just talking about the propaganda media, you know, Fox News and their type, but mainstream sources, the major news networks, CNN, even MSNBC. When you see them report on transgender people in this country, it's largely slanted in a very in a cisgender lens that is heavily anti that is heavily anti-trans and increasingly becoming anti-LGBTQ across the board. And you've got groups that are you've got language that you haven't heard in forty years coming back. Things such as the whole groomer, the whole groomer hysteria that they're coming after your children they're coming after your children and there's of course the transports hysteria and if it's not the transports hysteria it's a bathroom hysteria all these things are coming together and the real sad thing is people in our work in the working class jackie people in our class the american proletariat are buying it they're buying it because they aren't getting a counter narrative and you're not going to get a counter narrative from the liberals the liberals of even the Democratic Party has shown we will throw LGBTQ people under the bus to win a vote. It is up to revolutionary sources. It is up to revolutionary activists. It's up to those that are on the real left in this country to come forward and give, the, and give a paradigm that shifts away from that. And really what you're talking about is if you want to dismantle transphobia and homophobia, you've got to dismantle capitalism. You've got to have the conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, Rosa, as we are, you know, looking at the aftermath of another deadly uh, attack on uh, the LGBTQ community and the trans community in particular in Colorado Springs, what can you tell us about uh, the person who committed this this heinous crime and how do we have that conversation, that counter-narrative that Carly was just talking about in the wake of such an action that we connect these issues of working class uh, liberation and struggle against repression uh, for all working class people with the struggle for liberation and human rights and self-determination for LGBTQ and trans people? Yeah, well, so... The, the shooter in Colorado Springs is someone who has actually been arrested before for anti-woman violence, for misogynist violence. And this is, of course, a, a common pattern with all of these, uh, all of these shooters. Uh, you know, so, so many of them have a history 
of uh, abusing their wives, their girlfriends, uh, their their mothers, their grandmothers. Um, and we also know that, of course, you know, there, there are all of these social media uh, accounts. There are all of these uh, talking heads in uh, especially the, the right wing media who are uh, talking about how, you know, tr- uh, trans people supposedly pose this uh, this great threat, you know, this uh, this like groomer slander that uh, Carly was uh, was talking about. And so when you have people who are uh, so, so alienated, so sick, so just like inculcated in their misogyny uh, and willing to commit these horrific acts of violence. And then you have this narrative where the they, they have these figures in the media that they're listening to, these figures on, on social media that they're listening to who are telling them who to go commit that violence against, then you're going to get events like this. And we have to understand this in the in the, the broader context, right? Because violence against women, violence against trans people, these come from the same situation. These come from the, the, the same overall uh, cultural and social and economic and political context. It's not a coincidence that the attacks on trans people are coming at the same time and funded by the same people and organized by the same far-right groups as the attacks on reproductive health care, the attacks on the, the right to abortion. Um, we actually, in, uh, in San Francisco this year, the Trans March, which happens every year, happened to fall this year on the same day that the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade came down. And we had uh, the the trans march, and there was a a huge march that was uh, organized by, uh, in part, the the Party for Socialism and Liberation to to, uh, oppose this uh, horrible, misogynist, fascist Supreme Court ruling. And these two marches came together on uh, on Market Street, thousands and thousands of people in the street uh, fighting for abortion rights, fighting for trans rights, and showing this this unity of all of these struggles. And I think that's really the most important part. We have to understand that what trans people need is housing, health care, strong union protections, you know, lack of uh, protections against discrimination in uh, in at the job uh, and in housing and in all other areas of society. Uh, trans people need the, the same basic things that everyone needs, and we, we need to be able to access healthcare the same way that uh, women who need an abortion, anyone who needs an abortion needs to access healthcare without that being restricted for political reasons. So these are all really aspects of one struggle. These are all uh, these are all different aspects of the the same fight against the same far right forces uh, that are uh, that the the same far right forces that are organizing this oppression and repression and trying to use all of these different types of bigotry to divide up parts of the working class against each other, but. Like Carly was saying, the the answer is we need the, the the revolutionaries, the socialists, organizing 
the entire class to fight back against all of this because it's when we are united that we're strong and we're going to be able to defeat this wave of fascist violence. That's absolutely right. And I'm glad you ended on uh, that this is a wave of fascist violence because, Carly, I think that so many people in this country misunderstand uh, that we are in an era of rising fascism, not that fascism has not always been here, as uh, George Jackson uh, uh, noted in Blood in My Eye in 1976, I believe, when that book was published, fascism is already here because it's always been here. But how do you see uh, the attacks on LGBTQ people politically and the the physical violence? How do you see that as being uh, an expression of fascism as opposed to kind of the Hollywood kind of fascism that people uh, often uh, think about when they think about fascism? First off, that whole idea of of the Hollywood fascism, that's here too. Don't don't sleep. Don't sleep. There are people that are willing to. I mean, proud boys are no different than brown shirts. But what people have to under what people have to understand is the cliches are here and they're real. It, it's been said that when fascism comes to this country, we'll be waving it. We'll be waving that red, white, and blue flag and carrying a cross. Well, whoop, whoop, there it is. You have these people who call themselves Christian nationalists, and they. And these people have deep pockets, and they've gotten so much. They've built their own media sources. They've gotten so much access. They've infiltrated everywhere, and it's so bad they've even infiltrated within the community. This is what you're seeing here is part of the design. All these people, like you know, the family, the family research center, focus on the family. All these big money Christian groups. They've had this plan going for about eight years, where they said basically the first thing we're going to do is divide. Divide the LGBTQ community. We're going to make sure that, that the lesbian and gays will tolerate the cis lesbian and gays, but we're going to keep that T out of there. And then once we get rid of the T, we're going to strike down the rest of those letters without lo- when you're not looking. And they're already doing it. Look at Roe v. Wade, for example. That's not just a matter of reproductive rights. That's a matter of bodily autonomy. Being a trans person, that directly affects me. And they're using it by hitting people. Uh, they're hitting people at two places that, Ameri- that especially white Americans, you hit them, it's a Pavlov's dog response. They'll go for it every time, and that's faith and fairness. In the case of faith, they're, using, they're infiltrating people's churches and saying, it's them, it's those evil trans, those groomers, they're coming after your kids. And then they, they go for American sense of fair play. That's where, that, that's where the whole sports hysteria comes from. And don't sleep. That sports hysteria, it's a real thing. It's a, it's a real thing. They're using it. And then how they infiltrate our community, they use key people in our community that they, that they know will speak out, you know, people that they know will speak and will tap dance to their music, like these gays against groomer, these gays against groomers people, which is really right-wing operatives who are taking that money and trying to pump this narrative or the, the new detransitioner hustle. And there's something I want to point out here with that one, because the, the kid who's become the face of the detransitioners had an ugly tweet this morning. Chloe Cole had a tweet basically saying the vast majority of LGBTQ people want to just live their lives are suffering because extremely radical trans activists are using the acronym as a shield for their degeneracy. By the way, funded by the right wing. Now, now you think about that. Think about I want you to really let that sink in now. 
That's how far they're willing to go. And that's how far fascists have gone. Find the collaborators and bring them into the fold. But once we get what we want, then we send you to that oven next. We send you to that gas chamber next. That's why now more than ever, those who are thinking in a revolutionary mindset, those who are thinking workers first, those who are thinking proletariat first, we've got to start coming together. We've already seen what happens when we come together, fight, and win. Look at the wave of unionization in this country. Look at how much organizing is being done on our factory and our shop room floors. Now, we've got to take that energy and apply that across the board because work, because. Workers' rights and trans rights, one struggle, one fight. We have to stay in that mindset because it's been proven. The history has shown it. What stops fascists? Socialists do. Not liberals, not capitalists, socialists. You can look it up. Absolutely. And I think it's worth noting uh, that during the midterm elections, Republicans spent, and this is pointed out in the article, Republicans spent more than $50 million on ads attacking Democrats for supporting transgender rights. And it really didn't pay off all that well. We see that the Republicans didn't uh, win as much as we were all thinking they were going to. Uh, And Paul Cordes, the GOP's chief of staff in Michigan, noted that there were more ads on transgender sports than inflation, gas prices, and bread and butter issues that could have swayed independent voters. We did not have a turnout problem. Middle of the road voters simply didn't like what GOP gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon in particular was selling. So in other words, as pointed out by Carly and uh, Rosa and also uh, Morgan Arcucina, who is the uh, other co-author of this piece in Liberation News, uh, there is There is room for solidarity and growth and movement because working people do care about the material struggles of their daily lives under capitalism, and they care about the issues facing the transgender community. So what do we do when trans rights are under attack? We stand up. We fight back. Thank you so much, Carly and Rosa, for joining me today for this piece. We're out of time, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about the role that violent anti-Arab extremists play in Netanyahu's return to power in Israel and what that means for Palestinians. And I'm happy to be joined by Miko Peled, human rights activist and author of The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. 
really glad that you could come on, uh, come on and talk about this uh, group that are called the uh, Kahanists, the Kahanist extremists who are pretty much largely responsible for the uh, return to power of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I don't think we know a lot about the person that this group of people, um, who he is, this, this person, uh, Amir Kahani, and his role in fomenting this anti-Arab extremism that has now had a very large influence on the new government or renewed government of Netanyahu in Israel. So I'm hoping you can give us some insight into who this Mir Kahani person was and why his influence is so uh, such a concern for uh, what's left of Palestinian rights in Israel. Well, yeah, this is really, really important to uh, to clarify. So, uh, America Hanna was an American Jew who started what is known as the JDL, the Jewish Defense League. He founded it. Uh, today, the Jewish Defense League still, still exists, but it was designated by the FBI as a terrorist organization, extremist terrorist organization. Um, he was... Um, he moved to Israel, and he had this own little yeshiva. He was a rabbi. He called himself a rabbi, although a racist, violent man like that should never be called a rabbi. He had his own his own yeshiva where he, you know, he would take uh, all kinds of kids off the streets and, and and teach them to be racist radicals. And then he ran for the Knesset, the Israeli Parliament, in 1984. Um, and he actually managed to, to secure enough votes to, to get in. But he was a pariah. You know, he was he was he called for the forced transfer of all Arabs, all Palestinians from Palestine. He called for creating separate uh, uh, separate beaches and separate schools and separate cities, um, and only allow Palestinians who are loyal to the state of Israel and were willing to live without rights to remain. A kind of violent racism that is, in a way, ideologically not very different from what Israel actually does anyway, but the tone is kind of a gangster, you know, proud boys kind of, you know, uh, tone. Um, and what happened now, so he was, he was a pariah, nobody would talk to him. Now, his followers, some of his students, I mean, he was assassinated eventually in New York, so he's dead. But... Um, he, uh, his students, his very students are now running, um, have their own political party. They are the lar- third largest group or block within the Israeli parliament in the Knesset. They are Netanyahu's key to going, coming back to power. Um, and they're negotiating now for what they're going to get as a thank you and for guaranteeing that he, Netanyahu, will, uh, will uh, indeed be the prime minister. And um, it's it's frightening because it means that these people who, who've always been around and whose who's, you know power political power has been increasing gradually are not going to be running the table. They're going to be sitting in some really really important government ministries. They're going to have cabinet posts, sub cabinet posts. They're going to be in all the different parliamentary committees. Uh, they're going to be controlling budgets, and this will affect the lives of Palestinians which are, are already, you know, unlivable, practically unlivable, in a way that's going to make what is going on today look like the good old days. You know, they're going to affect them, number one, because they'll be in charge of these government offices, these government, you know, ministries. 
and the budget, but also because their base has been empowered by this uh, rise to power. And we just saw 30,000, 30,000 of their followers go into Hebron, the Palestinian city of Hebron, and riot and loot and beat people up and, and smash into people's homes, Palestinians' homes, and be, you know, just horrific, horrific stuff. Um, and nobody, nobody stops them. So Palestinians are going to be are going to be subjected to even more violence and more racism and more discrimination than they have ever been before, and that is really frightening. That's horrifying. Thirty thousand of these followers uh, rampaged through a Palestinian city, and that was nowhere broadcast on U.S. media, probably not in British media or any European nation. So literally, we're not hearing about, which is not a surprise, Miko. This is, you know, typical. This is, you know, standard uh, uh, operation for uh, U.S. media when it comes to the issues of the violations of human rights uh, against Palestinians that are committed by uh, uh, the government of Israel and its supporters. But this particular uh, issue with these Kahanists being members of the new government now of Netanyahu, uh, how will that violence be ramped up, particularly in the issue of settlements? Now, the United Nations, of course, has always declared that the settlements are illegal. And as you pointed out, which I didn't even know, the FBI uh, 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 declared uh, this Kahanis group, uh, uh, a terrorist organization. So, so how does this organization or, or the the adherents uh, of this uh, Kahanist um, uh, school of thought, um, how do they uh, transfer this open racism into what will happen uh, with settlements and the kind of legitimate legitimization of the kind of violence you just talked about? Well, you know, they, they've never had a seat at the table. And so on the one hand, you've got, like you said, the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, which was a, created by Kahana. And we've seen them at protests show up to, to pro-Palestine events and, 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 you know, beat people up and that sort of thing. Uh, we've seen it here in Washington, D.C. in the past. Uh, so they've been, they've been designated uh, by the FBI. Um, in Israel, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's very, very different because ideologically, Israeli society and the Israeli government, when it's, you know, are in line with this very racist, um, you know, kind of rhetoric uh, and ideology. But they, uh, th- this is a much more gang kind of mafia style of violence, you know. Um, these guys have never did not kill as many Palestinians as any Israeli general or Israeli defense minister, obviously, who seemed like you know nice guys. They were suits, they you know, uh, they well spoken. But the, they giving them the power to run the lives of Palestinians. This is the first. So they're going to be sitting in these government ministries that, for example, deal with housing, uh, deal with development. Palestinians, um, and I'm talking about now Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, so 2 million Palestinian citizens of Israel, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who reside in Jerusalem will be under their control. Um, already, you know, home demolition numbers are, are, are through the roof. Uh, lack of access to clean water, lack of access to electricity. And this is 
you know, right next to or across the street from Israeli communities that live, you know, very well, you know, some of the highest standards of living that you can imagine in the West, by Western standards. And so now it's going to be worse because they're going to get less schools, less budget, less water. The life is going to become more difficult. And these gangs that run around like the 30,000 that came to Hebron um, and have been have been doing this for, for a very long time, they will go into a Palestinian city, they will beat, they will torture, they will destroy, they will poison the water, into the water wells. I mean, they do terrible things. Um, and uh, that's going to be much, much worse now because they have the power. Now they're sitting, they have a seat at the table. And not only that, the Israeli government has what's called kind of an inner cabinet, which is the security cabinet. They're going to have a seat at the table that. So that means they're going to have access to some very sensitive information. And they will be making decisions, which even the Biden administration has already expressed concern. Um, because when it comes to defense issues uh, and security issues, the, the U.S. administration and the Israeli government work very, very close together. And the Biden administration, unofficially, of course, has already expressed great concern over the possibility that one of these guys, that these people are going to be in the defense ministry, that the Americans don't want to deal with them. They don't want to have them on the other side of the table, and they might have to. So this is even creating a rift between uh, two governments. Just, just the thought of having these guys in power or, or in places of power is, is scary to the Americans. And, you know, another aspect of this uh, development that is really terrifying is the danger that it poses to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Can you explain why uh, the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is now even more in danger uh, than it was before because of these political developments? Well, one of the one of the there are several important issues that 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 that, that these people are pursuing. One of them is what they call stronger governance, which basically is a code word for uh, tighter controls over the lives of Palestinians and, and more, more discrimination against Palestinians. The other thing is they are all of the belief that the Al-Aqsa Mosque should be destroyed and a so-called Jewish temple it should be built in its place on the Al-Aqsa compound or what they call the Temple Mount. They have been leading uh, marches and protests and and tours. I've I've actually joined them a couple of times on these tours throughout Alexa, and it's it's terrifying. Now these people are going to be in a place where they're actually running budgets and government ministries and and government bureaucracies where they will have the power to do this. It's 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 already been al- almost confirmed that one of them, Itamar Ben-Gvir, will be heading what's the equivalent of Homeland Security, which gives them the authority over the police. It gives them authority over all the security apparatus. Um, and in Jerusalem, and of course, Al-Aqsa is in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what they want. They want to see Al-Aqsa destroyed, burned down, and to build some kind of a crazy messianic, uh, you know, they call it a temple. Um, and uh, that is extremely dangerous. I mean, this is a uh, people, I don't know if people appreciate, you know, the Alexa compound, the Alexa mosque, and the Dome of the Rock, which is this beautiful structure with a golden dome that you see in, in pictures of Jerusalem. You know, it's been there for over 1,500 years. This is one of the most incredible, impressive architectural pieces the world has ever seen. It makes the Taj Mahal seem, you know, seem like, uh, you know, uh, it's it's a thousand times greater, bigger, more impressive, more beautiful than the Taj Mahal. And imagine somebody said, "Well, we're going to destroy the Taj Mahal and, and build something else there." 
you know, and, and people don't have the proper appreciation for how beautiful, how important it is historically, architecturally, and that all Muslims around the world worship that place. You know, it is the third most important um, uh, religious site in Islam. Muslims come to pray. Muslims come to, to um, you know, to conduct pilgrimage there. And these people will destroy it. They don't care. So that is extremely, extremely dangerous uh, from that perspective as well. And, you know, and, and the bottom line is, if I may just add, there is no guarantee. There's never been a guarantee, but there needs to be a guarantee. We need to be demanding some kind of guarantee to, for the security and the safety of day-to-day Palestinians. Because there's no, there's no, there's nobody, nobody defending them. You know, the sites from Hebron, yes, yesterday there was one video that came out of a young man who I actually know, who was running in the street trying to get the Israeli army to come and help his family. He's a Palestinian, Palestinian man, but he had nowhere to go because these guys, these settlers were in their home beating his, his mother and sisters, you know, in the old city of Hebron. It's a family that I happen to know. And he's running in the streets, and he's so frustrated, and he's asking the army to come in and intervene. Nobody's going to intervene. The army's not going to come and intervene against the Jews and for a Palestinian. And, uh, and there's nobody. There's nobody for to Palestinian to turn to. There's nobody defending. There's nobody caring about the safety and security of Palestinians. And this is a terrible, terrible thing. This is a terrible, terrible thing. And it's not part of the conversation anywhere. Who is going to, who can Palestinians turn to for safety and security? And the answer is no one. There's nobody out there. Well, then that's why it has to be us. I want to thank you so much, Miko Peled, for joining me for this very important discussion. But we're out of time. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about how advisory elections could possibly revitalize the peace movement in the United States. And I'm happy to be joined by Bill Crozier, board member of the Foreign Policy Alliance and president of the Houston Peace and Justice Center. Bill, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. Now, this is a really interesting prospect, I think, because... Uh, The peace movement certainly needs, I think, a new playbook for how we engage in uh, organizing regular folks, you know, not preaching to the choir. And the the idea, I think, is that uh, non-binding advisory elections might be a way to do that, to stimulate national conversation about militarization and nuclear weapons. So how is that possible? How do we, we use advisory elections to have these conversations with people in an electoral setting? Well, it's that's a good question. You know, the the idea is it started from the nuclear freeze movement back uh, forty or something years ago, um, where people all over the country decided they weren't getting enough action from Congress, or you know, to to do something about reining in nuclear weapons, and so they started using um, local um, non-binding referendums and initiatives and various things like that 
to get attention to the issues. And there were several hundred cities and counties and you know municipalities that were able to get local propositions on their ballot locally, um, basically expressing their opinion that you know we need to do something about reducing the number of nuclear weapons. And it was actually pretty successful, and that helped uh, get a lot of attention in Congress and elsewhere to, um, you know, uh, eventually we ended up with the START Treaty and some other um, treaties that were at least regularly reduced and not eliminate nuclear weapons. And so we're proposing using the same sort of approach um, to help, you know, rein in some of the excessive military spending and um, related areas. Um, there's a lot more information on our website, by the way, at foreignpolicyalliance.org. Yeah, you know, some of the things that have been noted to have been successful in bringing uh, conversations about militarism and nuclear proliferation and even uh, issues like the Ukraine war in uh, referendum public hearings, like in New Haven, uh, people turned out for a virtual public hearing to talk about um uh, uh, you know, the uh, military spending and other issues. So how can these kind of referendums be used in local uh, uh, electoral races to do just that, to talk about these pressing issues, particularly as the Biden administration has just narrowly escaped uh, losing the, the, the Senate? Uh, and is pretty much limping along uh, in its last two years of his administration with the Ukraine war and the unpopularity of the funding for the U- Ukraine war weighing heavily, not just on people's minds, but certainly on people's pocketbooks as the re- recession that is certainly fueled by this militarism is is in people's budgets if it's not on people's minds. Well, you know, the, the re- Ukraine war is, is kind of complicated, and I think it's correct that all the spending related to that has accelerated inflation probably worldwide, not just in the United States. Um, but, uh, you know, whether there's support for it or not, uh, I think there actually is a lot of support for it here in the United States. Uh, you know, I think the <laughs> Putin kind of galvanized people to, you know, by invading uh, Ukraine to support more military activities. I think that's unfortunate. I think it's probably, I think in the United States, we're probably going to continue to have a lot of support for the Ukraine war as long as civilian targets are being attacked. Now, we, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, those of us in the Foreign Policy Alliance still want to reduce military spending. We think military spending has been way too much for many years. Uh, the United States has spends more money on its military than I think the next six or seven countries combined. Um, you know, but if whenever people feel there might be a threat, they're more likely to support military spending. So we've kind of gone backwards, I think, in the last you know, in the last well, ten months or something like that since the um, Ukraine invasion. But I'm still hoping more in the long run. Uh, hopefully, this will be resolved one of these days before long. I'm still not sure how that's going to happen, but we we do support using diplomacy, not just for this issue, but you know, lots of other international conflicts. I think we. We need to use the United States and other countries as well. You need to, need to depend on diplomacy as the first um, method of solving disputes and disagreements internationally. And that's been downplayed, I think, too much over the years. Yeah, you know, and the way that you, that the FPA advocates uh, a localist strategy using these advisory elections and these kinds of 
referendum uh, discussions. How do you see uh, the the nuts and bolts of that working, even in the midst of, you know, widespread support of uh, the Ukraine war? How do you see uh, these referendum um, uh, public testimonies being able to raise the issue of military spending and also kind of help people kind of confront uh, their uh, uh, thinking and, and maybe some of the misinformation that is coming from corporate media uh, in uh, the Ukraine war, but also exposing the need for a, gr- a broader understanding of U.S. foreign policy um, in, in general. Well, yeah, take your last thing first. Yeah, we do need a better understanding of foreign policy. Um, and uh, but to get back to where your the first question about how do we specifically do the get grassroots support. Uh, there's two major ways. One is, and they're related. One is to, uh, if in states or municipalities where they have initiative, where people can actually require things be put on the ballot by a petition drive, that's one way to do it. And many cities, and sometimes states, don't have a really high threshold for that. Um, California's been kind of pretty well known for having an, uh, initiatives put on the ballot. And I'm not sure what the percentage is, but you have, a, you have to have a certain percentage of the, uh, I think, registered voters to uh, put something on the ballot. And they've had all kinds of things. And some other states do that, too. Texas, where I live, does not have that. But um, you can also uh, – some cities do. And, in fact, Houston, which is where I live, uh, you can we can do that. But also, and maybe an easier way, is to lobby uh, friendly city council people, for example, or county commissioners – to decide on their own to put an initiative or put a, um, a referendum on the ballot. So it wouldn't necessarily be um, required by a, pet- a petition drive because that's somewhat more involved in, in getting done. But, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, you know, people, I guess, in all parts levels of government are concerned about getting support for local issues. And, for example, uh, if we can get people to realize that more military spending means there's less money available for things that ha- help the people in our communities, whether it's health care or you know, police and fire protection, people are always concerned about that, or other you know, local interests. Sometimes uh, it's flooding, sometimes it's uh, disaster relief, all kinds of things. They're essentially, these different um, causes are competing for money with the military spending. And so I think that's the idea is to get people thinking about that there is this choice people are making, uh, people in government. You know, are we going to spend all these billions of dollars in the military, um, uh, especially on weapons that we may never need again, uh, or should we be spending some of it to help people locally? Or even reduce taxes. Yeah, and and you know the connection that you make, uh, your organization makes to these kind of local issues, I think is really intriguing in regard to using this uh, kind of tactic to connect uh, uh, environmental concerns to these discussions about militarism and even foreign policy. Give us a little bit of insight into how that is possible, how we raise uh, the consciousness of people uh, in a local electoral uh, uh, setting um, to the connection between militarism and I- environmental issues and how that can help uh, really make an impact on policy um, affecting both issues. You know, I think I see it as part of it as a rather direct relationship. Some people don't see how spending military spending and 
the military in general and environmentalism, for example, are linked. Now, it's interesting, the, the, the U.S. military has recognized that climate change is a real threat, uh, and they are actually doing some things to try to you know, reduce their carbon footprint. I don't think nearly enough, but they are doing uh, taking some initiatives and, uh, for example, installing solar panels at a lot of their bases and stuff like that. But we need to d- educate people a lot more. The The huge amount of military spending is makes it more difficult to get attention to climate change. And I'm, I was really glad that the uh, Congress and Biden approved this, you know, a few months ago, the the Inflation Reduction Act, it was kind of misnamed, but the idea was to spend some money, at least some more additional money, on helping people insulate and uh, come up with more efficient appliances, you know, heating and cooling systems, for example. All these things help reduce the amount that we, amount of carbon fuel that we use. But there would be more of money available if we spent less on the military. Uh, there'd be more money available to help with this and other things that, you know, help people into, you know, as, in their communities. And, you know, a big part of this um, tactic or one of the, the main goals, I think, of this tactic, at least that I get from it, is really to uh, uh, break the control of foreign policy away from the elites in Washington and make regular people, the people here domestically who are actually impacted by foreign policy, a lot more than they realize uh, – educating people uh, on a local level that they are uh, impacted by foreign policy and thus, you know, penetrating that elite uh, bubble that's around foreign policy that, you know, makes all of these terrible decisions that affects certainly people negatively around the world, but us here domestically, it's about wresting some of that control of uh, foreign policy from those elites who really just direct foreign policy to make more money for them uh, without any regard for the impact that it has on the lives of regular people around the world and domestically. So how do you see that uh, being accomplished uh, with this strategy? Well, you have to define who you're talking about in in terms of elites. Uh, I think, and I think many of my friends in the Foreign Policy Alliance feel that the, um, we need to learn from what Dwight David Eisenhower stated and his, you know, he was leader of U.S. or I guess Allied forces in World War II uh, against uh, Nazi Germany, and and then he became president. And his last speech, uh, as he was leaving presidency, and I believe 1960, he warned people of the growing threat of the military-industrial complex, uh, where basically um, weapons manufacturers are having way too much influence on government, and they. Uh, if anything, that's has increased. It's gotten a lot worse since then instead of getting better. And they make a lot of money from contracts, obviously, to build miss- missiles and bombers and aircraft carriers and all the other things. And uh, so it's to their uh, financial advantage to keep the military spending flowing. And they spend a lot of money lobbying Congress. And that's where I think the, the real conflict of interest is, is that we've got to somehow insulate people in Congress from all this lobbying, the expenses that the military does. Uh, and uh, frankly, I think the, the war in Ukraine has made this worse. It, it's, it's made it easier for them to say, well, we've got to build you know, more, more missiles and to give to Iraq, I mean, to give to Ukraine, just, excuse me. And um, so we got <laughs> we got to figure out how to get around that because I think as long as the Ukraine war is going on, it's going to be difficult. But 
even though I think most people in the United States don't see this as a real threat to the United States, but indirectly they're seeing the problems because of inflation uh, caused by the military spending and the rise in oil and gas prices and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. In the U.S., uh, there are about 23,000 local jurisdictions, cities, and counties. And in Washington, D.C. in particular, I have to admit, I see the opportunity because, you know, right out in the suburbs of this city, there are the headquarters of many of the largest defense contractors and some smaller ones uh, in uh, uh, the the close-in suburbs of this city. And imagine what it would be like, uh, folks who are listening in these areas who know that you live somewhere near uh, the the headquarters of uh, Northrop Grumman or uh, Lockheed Martin or one of these other large defense contractors. Imagine what it would be like to be in your city council meeting or to be in uh, a a public forum uh, called by your community uh, uh, leaders and talk about the amount of money that your locality ad- allocates in tax breaks or any other kind of funding to these industries and how much less money is advocated or allocated for public schools in your area, uh, public transportation, uh, those kinds of things for the people, public or affordable housing. I think in this area in particular, that change could be ground or earth shattering. And if it spreads across the country, I think it could change foreign policy. So thank you so much, uh, Bill Crozier, for joining us and giving us a peek into this strategy that could change the way foreign policy uh, is adjudicated in this country. But we're out of time for this segment. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, friends, we are back. It is I, Jackie Luke Monshawn Blackman is on a well-deserved vacation for the season. It is Monday, November 21st, 2022. And at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time later on in the show today, we'll be able to take calls from you. We'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and tell us about anything that you've heard on the show, anything that's on your mind today at all. We would love to hear from you, but that is not the only way that you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. Obviously, at 3.20 p.m., you can give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure right now 
on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. You want to be in there. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, We want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And I am happy to be joined for today's hour by Mr. James Early, former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, how are you doing? Thanks so much for being back with us. I am doing much better that I am now with you, Sister Comrade Jacqueline Luke, by bringing us news analysis, political education. It is so wonderful to be back on the program with you in particular. It is really wonderful to hear your voice and to have you back. And and I got to tell you, it is wonderful to be back on the program on a regular basis, too, all things considered. And it's especially wonderful to be back on the program and to have you on the program at this particular time in the in the history in the political history of the rest of the world not what's going on in the United States but you know the rest of the world has a very rich political history that we we ignore at our peril particularly in the case of what is going on in Colombia right now in the aftermath of the earth-shattering election of uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez, the left coalition that has uh, won the election and has uh, taken uh, office in Colombia, they have begun, or they have resumed, I should say, peace talks between the Colombian government uh, and the leftist guerrilla group, the National Liberation Army, or the ELN. And these talks are set to begin in Caracas, Venezuela, uh, today on the 21st. And I'm wondering if you can give us, Mr. Early, some background into uh, the history of the ELN, uh, why and, and how the talks Uh, broke down in the previous administration and why it is so important that these talks have resumed and the the importance of the role that Venezuela and Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro is playing in uh, the resumption of these talks right now. Well, this is a a critically important uh, new moment inside uh, Colombia as well as in the region. Uh, which is said in the larger context, I would suggest, of the uh, articulation of a multipolar world in which we are seeing a significant readjustment uh, in the struggle for governance, power, and economic systems uh, expressed uh, through governance. Uh, as a backdrop, Colombia um, is a very fractious country that has had the longest-running guerrilla warfare of real significance Uh, in our hemisphere, Uh, the FARC, uh, which uh, signed a peace agreement uh, under the last administration, I had the opportunity a few months before that agreement was signed to be the only U.S. participant of uh, 15 people from uh, around the Americas to go to Cuba to sit with the FARC. And Danny Glover and I had the opportunity, uh, Danny Glover, the, the, the activist, 
uh, actor and I uh, were in Colombia for the uh, vote, uh, which lost uh, to bring the peace agreement. And so that now with the Petro Marquez government, uh, there is new content to that. Specifically around uh, Francia Marquez, who is very much uh, laterally connected. She's not a professional politician. Uh, she is a community uh, organizer uh, with, who has worked with communities, particularly Afro-Colombian communities across the nation. And now with Petro, uh, they have made it clear to the United States that they are moving forward in the negotiation uh, with President Maduro of Colombia, first uh, signing an accord to renew diplomatic relations, and now uh, Venezuela playing a significant role in the negotiations uh, with the ELN, uh, as will be the Cubans. Now, that presents certain contradictions here for our American uh, listening audience to think about and to become engaged in. Uh, The Biden-Harris administration has continued the Trump administration policy of keeping Cuba on the list of state-sponsored terrorism without any evidentiary basis for that. Uh, In effect, what the Pedro Marquez government has said, that notwithstanding the U.S. position, they are moving ahead to deal with uh, Cuba and helping in these negotiations. And uh, they have, like the United States, uh, moved to uh, really re-engage the Maduro government. The United States, for different reasons, and that is the multipolar issue around oil, in which the Saudis and others and OPEC, uh, recalling that Venezuela uh, was the founder of OPEC many, many decades ago. Uh, And so with the situation in Ukraine uh, around fossil fuels, uh, as well as around wheat in particular and other foodstuffs, we have this waterbed effect where we are seeing a readjustment. And so that it has given um, uh, the Petro Marquez government some latitude to engage the Venezuelans. The Biden administration has also begun to engage the Venezuelans around oil. And so these are some of the complexities uh, that we need to follow both internally uh, with Colombia as well as Colombia in the region, uh, as well as Colombia and Venezuela uh, on the world stage. so it, it is a very momentous moment. I should also point out at this very moment, this is the first day of two days in Colombia right now where there is an international conference on reparatory justice with Afro-descended representatives uh, from the Saudi Republic on the continent of Africa, uh, as well as representatives across uh, the Americas, notably with the absence of participation as far as I can discern from Brazil, the largest uh, African-descended population uh, outside of Nigeria. So there's still work to be done. But this is sort of the the puzzle complex, if you will, uh, that citizens need to try to inform themselves about and work their way through to, one, inform their organizing constituencies here in the United States and to make sure that their representatives in uh, local, state, and federal Mm -hmm. governance uh, are reflecting our knowledge base and our aspirations to be participants uh, in these justice movements. 
And, you know, Mr. Early, what is the significance of the uh, uh, the renewal of these peace process, uh, peace talks with uh, the ELN in regard to the Colombian government recognizing uh, marginalized groups in the country? And what is, as you ended uh, your first comments with, what are the points of of um, organization, the points of unity we can have with those groups of people uh, who are being represented by the renewal of these peace talks uh, here in the United States. Because I, I, I always feel like we are the victims of a lack of, of knowledge of history. So we don't recognize uh, the, 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 um, the significance, uh, really, uh, of this group uh, being recognized formally by the Colombian government now and what that means to certain people in Colombia and why that's important or why that should be important to us here. Well, this is the developments inside Colombia at this moment are particularly important to indigenous and Afro-descendant communities, as well as trade unionists who have been the primary victims of vigilante and paramilitary violence. Uh, with a closed eye and, and de facto complicity of former uh, state representatives at the highest level from uh, the right winger, President Uribe, and his uh, puppet follow-up, uh, Duque and others, uh, who have, one, overseen the production of the largest production, I think, of cocaine in the world. Of course, the U.S. is perhaps the largest consumer market, uh, so there's a capitalist relationship here be- between uh, demand and, 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 and supply. And Petro has taken a very uh, a detailed uh, political analysis and public position on this. One, he has recently stated that he is doing nothing that the United States is not aware of, meaning that he's got them leverage now, that the United States uh, has to recognize the steps that he's taken. Secondly, he just announced, I think it was yesterday, I saw the photographs and some of the people I actually know, like Carlos Rosario, one of the tremendous Afro-Colombian organizers, along with uh, uh, the Vice President Francia Marquez, are members of the negotiating committee with the ELN. These will be very delicate. uh, And, uh, of course, the Petro Marquez government has taken another kind of step in light of what happened to to the FARC negotiations. When the FARC signed a peace agreement now a few years ago and the country voted against that agreement and the FARC gave up its arms and many of uh, its participants have been uh, victims of assassination and some of its key leadership has gone back underground. It seems that the Petro government has opened up a more transparent uh, uh, process. Uh, He is changing the military and the police operations. And so there is a good chance that this will go forward. Another uh, issue here, though, in this negotiation with the ELN is uh, that uh, President Petro has met with indigenous and Afro-descendants in the last four weeks, and he has said explicitly to them that your sectoral uh, democratic policy agendas are fundamentally important. But he has cautioned them and challenged them in being insular and too narrow because he has pointed out that what is at stake is the struggle against the elite in Colombia, and that they have to see their particular struggles in the context of participating in the leadership and in the policy formation of all life-defining issues in Colombia, 
not just in their ethnic, our, our, our trade unionists, our indigenous, our Afro-descendant uh, 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 perspectives. So this is indeed a new moment. And when you broaden that context and you see the emergence of the election of Lula da Silva uh, for a third term as president in uh, Brazil, who will interact with, with Petro, when you see that Argentina uh, is joining the BRICS country, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, in the South-South relations and this multipolar shift in the world, uh, that the Chinese just in the last week or so uh, have opened up a broader currency swap with Argentina, which takes them uh, out of the dollar economy and begins to challenge U.S. dominance. And of course, uh, the outspoken perspectives of President Obrador and Mexico all of these are parts of the spoke around the hub of Colombia. And I would just conclude this point by saying I refer to Colombia as the hub because I've said before on this program there are eight U.S. military bases in Colombia with a long history of training the police and the military and using those bases as a threat against South America and particularly and the Caribbean and generally particularly looking towards Cuba. So it is a very dynamic and promising moment. And here's where U.S. citizens have to break with our cultural habit of seeing a distinction between national U.S. domestic politics and U.S. foreign policy, where there is a tendency to be liberal and progressive uh, with regard to the push to overturn uh, the limitations of U.S. internal politics, but to align with U.S. imperial interests. And so we have to bring some punitive measures particularly before the Democratic Party, that when we cast our votes, both at local, uh, state, and federal levels, we are also casting them in regard to what is our citizen alignment or what should it be in terms of justice and peace and security with citizens around the world. And that is not just an international relationship. We have to recognize, for example, that when we look at the large Caribbean American community, that's a transnational community. When we look at uh, Latin Americans, uh, they are not just immigrants to the United States. They are multi-generation citizens in the United States who have these familial ties. They have a lateral transnational relationship of feelings and sentiment and loyalties, not this notion of the vertical that those are foreigners and we are, na are nationals. And so that we have to adjust our laws and our voting orientation to what is our connection as citizens of the world, not just as U.S. citizens. So uh, Colombia is a concentrated point that opens up a lot of these new possibilities uh, for us to play a more active role in solidarity with the justice movement there. Yeah, absolutely it does. And it's a very exciting development that we will certainly keep our eye on. But we're going to move to the first break of the hour. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are now open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. Now, Mr. Early, in the previous segment, you brought up Cuba and China in kind of separate context, but they are engaged in uh, negotiations or will be soon that I think are very interesting and very much a part of the multipolar uh, kind of coalescing that's been going on and I think is even ramping up uh, of many uh, governments that are not aligned with the United States around the world. Uh, and I think this, it's very interesting that Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel is scheduled to visit China this week as uh, the final stop of an international tour that he's been on that, of course, has gotten very little to no coverage in the U.S. that comes as uh, Cuba continues to battle a struggling economy and energy shortages, obviously, uh, due to the crushing uh, sanctions and criminal blockade that the United States government uh, continues to impose uh, uh, upon the country, uh, Diaz-Canal uh, went, went on a four-nation tour on November 16th. At the moment, he's in Russia, uh, having wrapped up a visit to Algeria just over the weekend. We'll go to Turkey, and then we'll eventually uh, stop in China. And China's relationship with Cuba is very interesting because China is Cuba's biggest trade partner and one of its major creditors. However, China has done something that is unheard of in regard to the way the IMF uh, deals with its uh, debtors. China, for example, forgave uh, Cuba six billion U.S. dollars of debt as a part of a major restructuring in 2011, and the Paris Club creditor nations agreed to defer Cuba's 2021 foreign debt repayment until this year. So. I feel like the uh, visit by President Diaz-Canel to China is also another uh, brick, if you will, in the building of this multipolar formation that is the BRICS uh, nations that is really being led by China and Russia. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this uh, trip by Diaz-Canel to China and what impact you think it's going to have on U.S. foreign policy toward all of these countries now? I I think a very important question. Uh, First of all, um, Cuba is in a dire economic situation. They are experiencing uh, the worst internal crisis of the deprivation of some basic goods and medical equipment uh, and the like uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, some would even argue it's more intense uh, than that period. Uh, one of the reflections of that is we're seeing an unprecedented uh, out-migration of Cubans taking illegal uh, steps to leave the country, uh, risking drowning in leaky boats and the like, trying to come into South Florida and many of them going into Central America and Latin American countries that come up uh, north uh, through uh, uh, Mexico. So these are uh, dire economic situations, uh, which is impelling uh, these uh, unnatural flows uh, that is complicated or really uh, enforced through uh, the U.S. embargo. I think it's important for citizens here in the United States 
to deal with the term embargo because it is a legislative mechanism mm-hmm. to dismantle uh, from the Cubans' point of view, which we should also understand and be supportive of. It is indeed a blockade designed to strangle them and to uh, move uh, the population. And this was explicitly said during the Eisenhower era uh, to squeeze the Cuban population uh, such that it will turn against and overthrow its constitutionally elected socialist government, where something there, I think it was 83 percent or so of the Cubans voted uh, in for their constitution, which explicitly uh, proposed Cuba as a socialist environment. So what is going on then with these canals and these international movements? Uh, one, he is strengthening uh, his alliance in order to get uh, material relief, uh, both in terms of debt and particularly in terms of energy uh, coming into Cuba and setting up uh, other relations. Uh, Cuba has recently opened up uh, to a foreign investment, and so that this may be another look at foreign investments that will help them maintain their socialist path, and which the surplus of that will redound uh, to the general public in terms of free health care, free education, uh, ensuring that uh, they have solid housing, uh, and, and, and those kinds of socialized uh, uh, fundamental perspectives within Cuban uh, 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 socialism. But at the same time, what is little talked about in the press is that the United States, uh, under the Biden-Harris administration, despite maintaining the draconian measures of the Trump administration and adding additional uh, sanctions on Cuba and without any evidentiary basis putting Cuba on the list of state-sponsored uh, 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 terrorism, is also tactically moving to deal with this immigration issue. Just last week, uh, a high delegation from the U.S. State Department uh, was in Cuba uh, talking about this. I met with members of ACERE, which is a progressive lobbying group on uh, whose advisory board I sit with uh, people like Medea Benjamin, uh, Andy Shalal, uh, Bus Boys and Poets, and others meeting with the State Department to argue of taking Cuba off the, off the list of state-sponsored terrorism. So uh, we're seeing the U.S. Uh, expand its consular services, and there's some tactical movement. There's likely to be a delegation of Congressman Meeks and Barbara Lee and, and, and McGovern and others that may go to Cuba in December. It's been postponed a few times, which now has a particularly urgency uh, to it in dealing with President Diaz-Canales because uh, the Democrats uh, will not control the House, and so that th- this is their last opportunity to really put some leverage on the Biden-Harris administration uh, to uh, really open up a more normal sense of relationships that were established under the presidencies of uh, President Barack Obama and President Raul Castro at that time, in which they made a major step uh, towards uh, full diplomatic relations. So this is the context of Russia, uh, China, uh, Turkey. All of these are fossil fuels extractive industry areas that can be a benefit to Cuba, and they are a counterbalance in the international shift of this multipolar world. Now, having said that, uh, one of the tendencies in U.S. culture, and I would argue perhaps in global political culture, even among progressives, is to look at these movements as though it were a basketball game or a soccer game of which team is winning, which block is winning. And I think that is fundamentally the wrong way to evaluate the significance of these motions. So the real question for Cuba 
and others who are moving uh, in this new context against NATO's expansion into Africa, uh, into Latin America, uh, the threat against China, uh, all led by the United States, is what redounds to the working class, to the most marginalized elements of those national societies, not just where their governance structures are in place, uh, one block against the other. And in the case of Cuba, I think it's uh, fairly uh, simple to, re- to deduct that the benefits from the travel and what will come in terms of investment and relief of debt and the provision of energy resources will redound to the working people of Cuba because it has uh, the most advanced system and where there is clearly a socialist orientation to the defining elements of life that their citizens need. And then there is this new democratic latitude uh, within Cuban socialism, uh, again, breaking down democracy as the demos, the ordinary people, and the quasi, the power of ordinary people, to envision and be creative, to have that individual independence and group-specific independence, but while being assured uh, that from the basic necessities of life, they will be able to inform a governance system that delivers their needs and does not leave it to raw competition as it does in the United States in which there are uh, uh, winners and losers in that respect. So I think this is a context of looking at the movement of President Diaz-Canal. I would conclude that I've had opportunity to meet with him at least on three occasions over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, he is an engineer by training, so he's a problem solver. Mm has big ears. He is a listener. And he spends a, a considerable amount of his time literally traveling the country of Cuba, meeting uh, with citizens in all of the provinces of Cuba about their views and aspirations, and being very explicit of holding the government representatives as well as the representatives of the Communist Party accountable uh, to the aspirations, the critiques, the needs, and the formulations put forth by citizens. So this is the context in which I think we should look at the movement of Diaz Canals in these on this particular tour. And you know, I I just gotta say, as a complete aside and and you know, completely personal observation for myself, I am always wildly impressed at the people that we have on this show, the circles that we are touched by, like we are literally two degrees of separation, or would that be one degree of separation, from President Diaz-Canal of Cuba. And that is through Mr. James Early. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to revel in the impressiveness of that for myself right now. Because I'm in this this spirit of 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 the the harvest of thankfulness for me, and I, and I'm going to take that as something to be thankful for right now. So excuse me, Mr. Early, for for you know enjoying that that moment as I'm thinking, wow, I am like literally one degree of separation and away from President uh, Diaz Canal of Cuba, and how great is my life? Mm, I I, could, I couldn't help but saying that, but but you know. As we're thinking about the relationship between Cuba and China uh, and Russia, this this aspect of China, which is arguably the largest economy in the world, all this business about the United States trying to compete with China, there is no competition as far as economies are are concerned. I think if we're honest, we should just admit uh, those of us who really are tired of this horse race kind of sports 
event analogy, this this competition that's supposed to happen between China and the U.S. There is no competition. China is the largest economy in the world. What do you think the the political calculus is that China uh, is is considering when they do things like forgive you know, $6 million in uh, or $6 billion U.S. in debt for Cuba uh, and other um, uh, uh, international finance organizations defer Cuba's debt. How, how do you think that plays into this coalescing of the uh, multipolar uh, world that we're seeing? And, you know, how do you think these uh, uh, government leaders are assessing the, I mean, it is it is going to be, there, there's obviously going to be blowback from the United States. But it seems to me that they're not very concerned about that blowback. And what do you think that means, just in general, in the larger, bigger political, socio-political um, a world that we're seeing being born? Well, these are long-standing, uh, complex uh, historical relationships uh, between countries in the global south who were subject uh, to Western uh, and U.S. Uh, imperial uh, domination, in the case of China, uh, opium wars, uh, in the case of Japan being one of the bloodiest imperialist expansionist countries uh, in the 20th century that went all the way to China and, and, and to India. And so that the socialist outlook uh, for all of the critical complications that need to be transparently put forth of of its uh, failures and, in some instances, atrocities, that ideal uh, has impelled them, uh, these countries, to continue to find a way to collaborate with ordinary people to control their own lives and not be controlled by corporate entities, corporate politicians, uh, monopolies, and the like. Uh, and to become beholden to the charity uh, of other countries. So this is an international solidarity expression. The Cubans have been very independent and historical in their negotiation of between the, what was then the, the uh, Chinese and the, and the, Sino, the Sino-Soviet uh, debate and split uh, as it was in the, in the 70s. Uh, the Cubans always uh, were really serious about being self-determination, being sovereign. And so we're seeing a a, a continually spiraling forward, if you will, and where China has now emerged, as you're correct, as a dominant economy, uh, as the solidarity internationalist economy. Uh, I would uh, blow my own horn by referring people to the ninth in what will be a a, a 10-part series uh, from the People's Forum that I was invited to uh, collaborate on with these uh, young uh, progressive uh, uh, organizers and activists uh, with Michaela Escog. Uh, you can go online and find that new world coming people's forum, uh, James Early, and look at the ninth edition where Michaela Escog, who is a part of the Tri-Continental Research uh, Center, is talking about China and Africa and China and other places in the world. China is also the leading a country in dealing with economies in South America. It is no longer the United States, and it is displacing Europe and other countries. And so uh, it points out that China is interested in a reciprocality that uplifts 
uh, the most marginalized sectors, particularly of working class people in all of their respective countries. Most people in the United States, because the press will not talk about it, are unaware of the extraordinary uh, uplift uh, of poor people in China in which they basically eradicated poverty in, in qualitative ways. Of course, there are still very poor people given the feudal dimensions of modern China. Some of us can recall, I'm almost 76, when you could look at television and you might see three cars rolling down the road in China and literally thousands of bicycles. That's no longer the case as one index of what has been provided for the uplift of the quality of life uh, and the aspirations of ordinary people. So China is is huge and emerging uh, with, the, with the, Silk, the new Silk Road, which goes into Eurasia and where Russia plays a central role uh, in the, the fossil fuel uh, issue, as we know, with Germany and other countries, and it has forced countries like Germany to really waffle a little in its relationship with the U.S. Uh, vis-a-vis China. And, and so this is the context of the emergence of China and the, the relief of, of debt and uh, for the provision of, of resources. And as I pointed out earlier, just in the last several days or so, uh, the increase in the the currency exchange between the Argentine uh, monetary system and the Chinese monetary system so that they can trade uh, in among themselves with their currency, uh, exporting, importing goods from other countries and not having to rely on the International Monetary Fund, which the United States uh, has controlled and which squeezes countries with these austerity measures as they have historically done uh, with Argentina, which has caused Argentina to go in into debt crisis on a, on a number of, of occasions. Again, what is the ultimate measurement of this? And that is not just watching this relationship between the blocks and how they realign to get latitude, but what those blocks of states do with regard to collaboration with working and marginalized people in their societies uh, to inform policies and to better their lives. So in the case of Brazil, where there are over 100 million Afro-descendants, 54% of the population self-identified as black and mixed race. How do the, do the Chinese take that under consideration in dealing with the Euro-Brazilians who head the corporate affairs and lead the Workers' Party, uh, notwithstanding the extraordinary solidarity of Lula da Silva, who is explicitly, uh, again, raised how he is going to work with Africa, it was one of the first things and how he has dealt with zero poverty in his former administrations, and how he has recently said, yes, fiscal stability is important, uh, but we must deal with social uplift. So this, again, are this the context, the complexities, and I think the instructional orientation is always using the optic of what is the impact in collaborating with working people and marginalized and exploited people, specifically women. Lula, for example, has said, that the face of poverty in Brazil is a woman and she's black. But, of course, they're poor white women or indigenous women. But that is a way of saying he gets the essential factor of what democracy uh, and his social democratic uh, orientation to working with these populations. And in, so we'll have to see how these engagements with China and Russia and Turkey, uh, India plays in this uh, to some extent, uh, will, will operate in the interest of working people.
And it would be very, very interesting as we watch this unfold, too. Very excited to be able to watch it unfold. But we are going to move to another break uh, this hour. We'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lupmont, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And Mr. Early, I want to pivot a little bit to talk about Haiti, because even though uh, the United States and the United Nations have not gotten their way with a another uh, invasion and occupation of Haiti, as the United States has been pushing for, because last month, the Haitian government, which let's not forget, was imposed upon the nation by the United States, made an extraordinary appeal for an armed intervention to confront armed gangs that are also armed and propped up by the United States to to allegedly stabilize the nation. Uh, The United Nations Security Council voted to impose sanctions on gangs and individuals who fund them, but that's that's not really happening uh, because no one in the United States and none of the U.S. State Department, USAID, National Endowment for Democracy, CIA, Alphabet uh, Soup cutouts are being uh, impacted by the sanctions at all. Um, but, you know, the diplomats have not decided whether to send a multinational force. And I think it's worth noting that the reason that vote uh, has resulted in nothing happening from the United Nations was was largely because Russia and China refused to vote for uh, a, uh, a multinational force to be sent from the United Nations. So now Canada seems to have um, uh, uh, announced sanctions on some powerful politicians in Haiti, uh, part of a supposed broad push by Canadian officials uh, to punish people believed to have ties to the gangs uh, uh, that have been terrorizing Haiti. And among those being targeted by the sanctions were uh, Michael Martelly, who was president from 2011 through 2016. You recall he was uh, highly favored by Hillary Clinton at the time, and he remains very influential in Haiti, as well as two former prime ministers. Uh, None of these people, the people in Haiti, actually voted for. What do you make of this, Mr. Early? I mean, is this, is Canada scratching at the surface of doing something meaningful, or is this more window dressing from another U.S. ally to make it look like Uh, The imperialists are doing something good as another pretext for another invasion and occupation of Haiti. Well, of course, as a methodological approach to trying to understand and unravel and be supportive of progress here, uh, it's the internal dynamic, what the correlation of forces are. But let's start with the external dynamics. 
of uh, imperial control over Haiti. Again, it's one of those intersections that in my personal life, uh, you know, Danny Glover and I were the two people who went down to come back with President Aristide uh, that Mitel, you know, threatened um, in all kinds of uh, uh, harmful ways. He, he spoke publicly repeatedly because of his fear of the return of Aristide, who decided that he was not going back into a political office. Uh, it, this is a farce, uh, on the, is where I'm leading here, on the part of Canada and the United States, and it's a dangerous farce. Uh, after supporting Martel, uh, did they not know that he was involved with Columbia drug lords? Um, what, where was their due diligence when they were right up front in supporting these anti-democratic um, politicians in Cuba and denying Lavalat? Uh, the grassroots uh, party in, in which uh, Aristide was involved in uh, to, to really handle the internal situation. Now, looking internally at Haiti at this moment, it is a crisis moment. Um, uh, it, and indeed, uh, gangs um, have taken over the public sphere, and um, the, the elite politicians who have relied on Canada, the United States, and France, who have been exploiting the masses of people in Cuba, I mean, and, 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 and Haiti, are now about to lose total control. It's been a long time since I've been in Haiti, but over the years I've visited Haiti twice. I've never seen poverty as I have seen in Haiti. Even in the most elite areas with huge houses where the elite live, outside are squatter communities of Haitian, really Haitian uh, peasants squatting, uh, cooking out of doors, uh, uh, using water that are run, running through gutters. It's an extraordinary, uh, unbelievable, horrific uh, poverty and isolation and alienation where the masses of these people are Creole speakers. So their symbolism, their cosmology about the world is so dramatically different from the imposition uh, of the elite, both in terms of the French uh, and, and the U.S. I listened to Ron Daniels of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century this morning uh, on Zoom in his opening presentation at the International Conference on Reparation uh, being held in Colombia starting today and runs until tomorrow, and people can find that online. And what he talked about, I really agreed with. We must stand up and keep the U.S. and Canada from sending troops uh, in, to which is really to take over which means we must find out who are the most progressive forces on the ground, not based on our ideals of what progressivism is, but based on the internal negotiations of who actually represents the interests of the masses of ordinary citizens and how do we support them to deal with this gang violence, not how do we support uh, imperial countries to come in and send their militaries. Now, notably, just in the last two or three days or the last week, Lula da Silva, the new president of Brazil, uh, recalling that Brazil was the major U.N. force uh, imposed in Haiti in which cholera was brought in, uh, the number of young girls who became impregnated uh, by soldiers. It was a debacle. Uh, Lula da Silva has said that they will not send troops. Now the question is who should uh, help the citizens and who, and in that regard, be somewhat of an alliance with the government, but from the vantage point of citizens. And I hear I agree with Ron, Ron Daniels again of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, as he presented this morning 
the CARICOM countries, of which Haiti is a, a member of, and at least an associate member of, if I recall correctly, should be the ones to deal uh, with civil society as an interlocutor uh, with these puppet uh, politicians. Uh, the Cubans have, for decades, along with the Venezuelans, put tons. Uh, the Venezuelans have put tons of money into Cuba and, and, and into Haiti, uh, helping working people with fuel and the like. And of course, the Cubans have a long history of medical assistance there. So these are two countries in alliance uh, with uh, the CARICOM leadership. I would hope that Mia Moore Motley, uh, along from, from Barbados, uh, a really progressive uh, prime minister uh, who showed up in Egypt uh, recently talking about climate change, who's called for uh, stepping outside of the Bretton Woods uh, funding agencies that the United States controls. Uh, I would hope that Barbados would play a role. I would hope that Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez from uh, from the Grenadines uh, would also, another progressive, would play a role. And I think uh, in our listening audience, particularly those of you who are of Caribbean background and Haitian background in particular, citizens of the United States as well as immigrants and residents, but all progressive people would write uh, to CARICOM uh, representatives to the embassies here in Washington uh, to the prime ministers and presidents of Caribbean countries, and to say that they should take the lead in working with their fellow Ant Antillean countries, Haiti, uh, because we all, as the late Hugo Chavez, president of Venezuela, led us into re recognizing we all owe a debt to Haiti, enslaved Africans defeating Napoleon's army and developing the first republic in the world uh, coming from enslaved people, in this instance, from enslaved African people. And so that, that tremendous history is our history, and we have a responsibility uh, in the uplift with uh, the uh, progressive organizations inside Haiti. So that's a context and a direction that I think uh, that we have to address it, and we have to be very concerned uh, that this is a farce. First of all, gangs, sanctioning gang members, I mean, do they have all this money here in the U.S.? What, are they traveling back and forth? Why hasn't this been discovered in previous administrations when the U.S. and Canada and France were really imposing political control over Haiti? So we have to guard against that because the next step is, I think, clandestine uh, police and military operations on the part of Canada and the United States uh, with these uh, politicians who really don't represent the interests of the masses of Haitian people. Absolutely. And a uh, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat on Rumble. Nawadi said, oh, we should have a letter writing campaign in response to what you just said about everyone writing to uh, the embassies of the uh, Caribbean nations. That's exactly why we want you all to do that. That's that's exactly why we say the things we do on this show, because we expect you to follow up with the suggested action. So you've got your marching orders, folks. Get to writing to those embassies on behalf of Haiti because we all owe a debt to Haiti, certainly. Um, and, you know, a little bit of a pivot, pivot and I, I think it might seem like a hard pivot, but I actually don't think it is, Mr. Early, because I'm looking at the domestic political situation and I'm looking at the turmoil in the Republican Party right now. And I'm, I'm considering it in the broader context of the struggle of working class 
uh, poor and oppressed colonized people around the world, most of whom are black, brown, indigenous, Afro-descended of some kind. And I'm looking at what might not seem like a seismic shift in politics in the United States, but I kind of get the feeling that in a weird way, in the U.S., we are feeling a little bit of a a blowback, I'm hoping, of those liberation struggles that are not only going on, but are being successful in several countries around the world that are creating this multipolar, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic coalition, uh, international coalition that's going on in the rest of the world. So, I get the feeling that the the Republican Party in this country overplayed its hand with uh, Trumpism uh, and people in this country are not comfortable uh, with that overt fascism, racism thing. And that does not mean that that these elements are going away because the Republicans are are not uh, handling uh, the overt display of of their obvious character in the Trumpism that emerged to the point where they don't want it back, that the the Trump brand is actually seems like an albatross around their neck. But but I wonder how you do see uh, the political landscape in this country now in the context of what we've been talking about today. And if you think that the 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 repudiation of the Trump brand and the Republican Party in the midterms, even though, you know, they did narrowly gain control of the House, they did not win the Senate. So there was no massive uh, red wave. But but again, that does not mean that, you know, the the character of the Republican Party that is was there before Trump isn't still there. Do you think there are some inroads to build coalition uh, that could make a difference in, I guess, the political landscape for working class uh, and poor people in this country? Or do we still have a heck of a lot more work to do to realize the kinds of gains that we've seen internationally, um, even even a fraction of that here in the United States? I think we've got a heck of a lot more work to do because uh, here is how I sort of see the dynamics. There is this uh, media propagation uh, that goes certainly among uh, liberals as well as right-wingers, but even among some uh, progressive media that is uh, over-focused on the dynamics of the personalities of politics, uh, uh, Trump and McConnell and, and Pelosi and, and, and the like who are over-focused on sort of the game-playing dimensions of this, the Democratic Party versus uh, the Republican Party, uh, in which the reality is that whichever those parties uh, in their perennial competition for governance uh, has attempted to exclude the Democratic Socialists and Social Democratic uh, Party forces who are closer to the uh, working people in the Democratic Party, and who have totally misdirected working class, particularly uh, white working class people who are aligned with the Republican Party. So there has been little, uh, there's been, you know, sort of sectoral incremental developments here and there, but no real systemic uh, transition. And there has been a heavy take back uh, on the rights, uh, particularly of the most marginalized of black voters, for example, with voter suppression and the redistricting in which the Democratic Party 
uh, elite has not been able to step forward. And so to limit that in any significant way, despite the fact uh, that particularly black people and select states have continued to be in their smaller numbers, the margin of victory of who gets the House or who gets the Senate. Now, there's another dynamic here in which I don't think uh, 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 the Republicans have overplayed their hands. I don't really think there is a Republican Party. Uh, there really are is really now a deep fractional divide uh, that has a right-wing, authoritarian, fascist, uh, homophobic, anti-working class uh, new sphere still carrying that Republican name that is organizing internationally with Steve Bannon and Bolsonaro. And there's a, just a recent meeting uh, in Mexico with Bolsonaro's son. Um, uh, Macri, I think, was from Argentina, was there. Uh, these right-wingers from Hungary and others, they're still organizing globally. And recall three or four years ago that Bernie Sanders, uh, the Democratic Socialist, the most explicit one in the U.S. Congress, uh, who is in, embedded or in collaboration uh, objectively with people like working family parties and uh, organized nurses and trade unions, not as one group, but as a network, a network of progressive organizations, uh, tried to convene an international grouping of basically social democracy, democratic socialists, but basically social democracy parliamentarians from around the world explicitly to confront this international right-wing organization, which is still going on. Now, what is the last, uh, the last dynamic of that that I will mention that we really have to pay a lot of attention to in the work that is to be done is that when Joe Biden was uh, elected as the president over Donald Trump, he was very explicit in his campaign, and he continued to lean in the direction of the return to normal order. Normal order in the context of the duopoly, the elite members of the Republican Party and their corporate backers and the elite members of the Democratic Party and their corporate backers, again, in, in, in perennial competition of who will win the stewardship, have tried to exclude others. But now with this deep divide uh, under the rubric of the Republican Party, what have we seen? We have seen an alignment of, of the McCain tendency uh, with the Biden tendency, with Cheney being praised um, as now as some kind of uh, upholder of democracy when she has voted against all of the progressive dimensions having to do with black and minority people and finally came around because one member of her family is a lesbian, finally came around to some support for LGBTQT. This is a dangerous development in which I'm concerned that we are seeing a drift of these centrist Democrats like the Biden group uh, with these so-called historical moderates uh, like the Cheneys and the McLean tendency in the Republican Party. And we have seen it in mainstream media. If one looks at MSNBC, for example, who are some of the key pundits? They're former members of the more moderate, so-called moderate dimensions uh, of the Republican Party. So it means that the grassroots has really got to continue to move towards more radical, progressive uh, elected officials at local, state, and federal levels who are in constant or continuous communication and collaboration with them, not just using them as mannequins to move around the chessboard of the elites of these parties. So 
that, those are the dynamics that I'm seeing, and I don't think we get any particular reprieve uh, with the the destruction going on in the Republican Party uh, because those people across the board uh, have voted for sectoral interests or systemic right-wing fascism. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time for this show and this segment. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. And until next time, we'll see you later. Peace. By any means necessary. 